Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 7. Unification 3 is over, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Lee, and I got to tell you, I'm a little bit lost in this storyline because I didn't see Unifications 1 and 2, so I'm hoping that my pal Mike Bloom will clear some things up for me. Uh, yes, I've been putting out a lot of takes today as to when you should watch things in order, but I'm very happy to be here, Jess. I did have some reservations that you would have promoted one of the uh, one of the more lower-ranked members of the PSR staff uh, ahead of me, so I'm happy to serve as the EXO for now. Hopefully, I haven't done any sort of too rogue of a mission for you to let me go and then replace me with a, a go-getter, but still a relatively low-ranking person that you, you take a shining to. Well, Mike, you haven't done anything bad enough that I have to invoke a whole scientific tribunal of Romulans and Vulcans to figure out what's going on with you. So you have that. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what that what that version would be called. The uh, like uh, Rahap and Ket might be the version of like the RHAP version <laughs> of a tribunal. <laughs> but we're on we're on PSR. So it's like the PSR and Ket. Yeah, PSR and Ket, where it's Josh Wiggler and it's uh, it's a vampire from the strain and it's uh, Wanda Shirk that are sitting and they all represent different factions, but they preside over the hearing. Uh, but I think you also speak with absolute candor, which I love about you. So I think you would make for the best, uh, you know, associate or advocate as well. Uh, I, I like I pride myself on that. But, you know, speaking of absolute candor, before we get any further, we should probably take a moment to thank our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else, from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV, and start streaming now. Pluto TV, drop in, watch free. Yeah, I mean, there was certainly a lot of drop-in going on here. I mean, I think we know how the Navarians would react to someone trying to drop in and steal their Pluto TV account, even though it is free. I don't think they'll be very happy about it, especially if it's a Federation account. Well, you know, one of the ways that Michael Burnham caught up to everything that's happened over the thousand years that she missed out on, uh, she just turned on the Star Trek channel on Pluto TV and watched all of the old episodes of Star Trek. And it's like, oh, that all happened after me. Cool. I'm caught up now. Well, I'm glad she took the time to do it now instead of, you know, the year in between of like, you better watch this archival footage of my brother who became arguably like one of the most important people in the entire universe. I'll get around to that one day. And then that one day happened to be in this yeah. episode. I think we should just start here because yeah. Michael Burnham does a lot of weird stuff this episode. This is by far one of the weirdest. She is, you're telling me she is here for an entire year, a thousand years into the future, and she doesn't take three minutes to space Google her brother. 
Yeah, I mean, that sort of is one of the things, the first thing you do when you time travel, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is like, look up yourself and look up anyone who's close to you and see what they were able to do. And we got a nice little flashback as to, you know, how Spock and Michael ended their conversation with it sort of implying that Michael was the push to put Spock in the right direction on the Enterprise with Captain Kirk. And the rest is history, quite literally. It is interesting that maybe she didn't have access to the Federation files, to to look that up. I do wonder, to your point, as she was sort of masquerading as this courier to get information in the gap here, how much of it was like, so you uh, you ever heard of Spock before? <laughs> or at least ask about, like, where's Vulcan? You know, I'm, yeah. I, I think even more than the Spock stuff, I think the Navarre surprise was probably a, a more shocking thing for me from Michael's part than what happened to Spock. Yeah, I don't really buy that she's not going to have heard the name Navarre at least once in the past year. Like she might run into someone who's a Vulcan or Romulan while she's out couriering and she might be like, oh, yeah, how's things on Vulcan? And be like, you mean Navarre? Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like uh, maybe Book was like, oh, you never asked. Uh, You know, I had all this information. You just haven't asked the right questions. Though I guess it also does beg the question of – so many years after the burn, we obviously know from a distance perspective, things are cut off. I guess with subspace emissions being so distant as well, does does information just not get around at yeah. all? This is one of those things that I think, you know, Star Trek has had a lot of trouble with imagining the future and then having the present catch up way faster than they ever thought <laughs> the future would. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like instead of like, we don't need to carry around all of our information on pads anymore. It's all uploaded to the cloud and we don't need, you know, you don't need a tricorder and a pad because I think my Apple watch can do all of that stuff already. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff, of course, they haven't cracked yet, like teleportation and food replicators and all that. But there's a lot of things, especially with regard to the sharing of information and the accessing of information that we here in 2020 can do apparently better than they can do, you know, 1100 years into the future. And that I find that really interesting because it seems to me that they should have had access to something like there in a, in a day, this day and age when you can fit all of Wikipedia on a drive the size of a deck of cards. This is not something that should be an obstacle to information. Right. I mean, I guess the equivalent to. Our society nowadays would be like if a big EMP came in and like took out all satellite waves, radio waves, etc. So we like couldn't use any technology to talk with one another. That I guess is sort of the equivalent of what they're saying they're in right now, which is from a, a transportation perspective and a communication perspective. Nobody, this is a multi-hand organism, this universe, and nobody really knows what the other hands are doing, uh, unless you're just talking about the hands that are in immediate proximity. But to your point, yeah, I mean, it's the the 3000s, the, you know, we're 3100s, you would expect there would almost be some sort of, like, backup system or psychic connection between people (laughs) across light years so that they'd be able to give each other even just, like, the top headlines of the day. Yeah, don't they have like a little cup of biomimetic goo that stores all human knowledge? I, I feel like everybody should have that cup on their bedside table in this day and age. And they don't seem to have backed anything up from the cloud before the burn. I do love, I was wondering why the previously on made mention of the goo. I was like, okay, something going to happen with the goo. It was only just to like remind us of it so that when we see Stamets just go two fistfuls into the gak, that people aren't like, 
what the hell is going on? When did this happen? Why is Stamets just goo-centric nowadays? Yeah, and you know what the great thing about that goo is? Not only does it take the place of the of the little stunts, the little stents that he had to have in his arms, it also exfoliates while he's in there. It's like whole spa treatment. Yeah, oh, I didn't realize there were so many beads in there. That's really nice. Hopefully, it's not too rough on his skin then. Yeah, it's partially made of paraffin wax. So, oh, that's good. Yeah, Hopefully, it's pretty nice. Like I would say, all natural ingredients, but no nature really exists in Star Trek, especially with Starfleet. So, it's no natural ingredients is what yeah, they go by. It's true. All, all, all artificial ingredients. Yeah, no, no nature here. Um, but Mike, I, I want to get your thoughts, like overarching on this episode, because I have some, and they might be controversial. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. So yeah. I'm. It's tough. I, I I really have been trying to wrap my head around it because. One of the biggest remarks for and or against uh, a lot of modern track discovery in particular was how much it tied into canon, um, specifically, obviously, the first two seasons of Discovery. And a little bit in this episode was dealt with Michael Burnham's relationship with Spock and it taking place in the TOS age, speaking of technology that might seem a bit anachronistic. This is a way I feel like they took full advantage of where they are set in relation to canon. I mean, I'll admit my opinion is a bit clouded by, of course, my love for TNG and unification in particular was a big deal. Uh, It was always a big deal when original series actors went over to the next generation because it was so many years after the fact. And I, I remembered, obviously I didn't watch it at the time, but like I was pretty geeked out getting to watch Spock make his first TNG appearance in that two part episode, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into so from my own personal standpoint, I thought it was a really cool follow-up random. I mean, as we talked about, I think even in our preview podcast for the first couple podcasts, we were looking at the episode titles and like, wait, Unification 3, is that really a sequel to that two-part <laughs> episode from the beginning of Season 5 of Star Trek The Next Generation? But it was done in a way that, almost hearkening back to The Next Generation, felt like episodic and and baked in, uh, in you know, like we talked about with with Episode 3, a lot of Star Trek classic, hey, let's put people in a room together and really talk out their philosophical differences, but also in advancing the plot and advancing the characters as well. So the more I, I'm really chewed on it, the more I really enjoy particularly the main plot of the episode. We can certainly talk about the Tilly of it all uh, and, you know, what that means for the ship moving forward. But admittedly, you know, viewing it through the goggles in which my TNG loving ass views a lot of Star Trek. It was something that I was very happy to see. Now I'm hopefully firmly uh, girded my loins in preparation for Jess, your take on the episode. All right, Mike. Well, you make some very good points about the canon. Um, and I can't dispute that. I really, I think it's really fun. You must be fun to be a writer on this show, especially if you're such a Star Trek geek that you really want to play in the universe of, well, what happened after everything we already know happened and how do we envision this came together and what are the implications? I loved all the shout outs, even to Picard. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah, Look at you, Co-op Milot, making an appearance. I'm glad you lasted that long past the Romulan. I mean, that was an interesting thing as well. I was thinking like, interesting that they took the the Romulans back to their planet. And I was like, oh, yeah, the Romulans don't really have anywhere to go because they lost Mm -hmm. their planet a while ago. Yeah. And I, I really... That was well thought out because someone had to dig deep into what do we know about the Romulans and how is that going to affect how the how the Vulcans and Romulans 
merge together into a society. And the co-op Milot had to play a role in that for sure. There was a really fun segment on, you know, they do this every week on the ready room of like behind the episode. And I think one of the writers of the episodes talks about how they were writing this season at the same time as Star Trek Picard season one, or they were working on it. So like, Mm. I think someone had been that little messenger bird. I was like, Oh yeah, I could include the co-op Milot. And they're like, what the hell is that? And so they had to like really, like you talked about, it was a bit of a cooperation between these writers where like the Picard writers had to fill them in on what the Coet Milat was. And I'm glad that they did because I think at this point, these three shows especially are are a bit siloed. So I'm happy to see a bit of crossover and hopefully this encourages more communications to make sure that while these are three very different shows, they are under one universe. So it's like uh, you're really pushing toward unification, Mike. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's occupying the same uh, writing planet, for instance, hopefully not the same writer's room for various reasons. But it's a nice little thing of like, you know, getting in the the Star Trek writer Slack chat and being like, FYI, uh, we created a new Romulan sect of warrior (laughs) nuns if you want to use them at any point. Yeah, I, I, I did love that part of it. But I will say plot wise, Mike, I think this was the weakest episode we've gotten this season so far. Mm. And that's just because these are this is beat for beat an episode of any TV drama with any kind of arc, there is always that one thing, especially anything to do with sci-fi or fantasy or exploration. There is that one episode where they're coming into a hostile presence and they invoke some arcane aspect of that culture to put themselves on trial and appeal to the instincts of the bad guys who are not so bad after all and get what they want by revealing some part of themselves. And then it's like, oh, we're not so different after all. Thank mm. you for participating in this arcane thing that nobody's ever mentioned before. And that is something I, I would say this is something the thing it reminded me most of was. The season one episode of Game of Thrones where Tyrion Lannister is mm-hmm. captured in the Eyrie and then he says, I'm going to invoke a trial by combat. And it's the first time you've ever heard of this. And it does have repercussions later on in the series. But it's like, oh, yeah, hey, there's this one random thing in our culture that will save my butt. And it does. It's a little, it's a little Deus Ex Machina or Michael, Michael Nunn, like, oh, yeah, she, you know, they, for the umpteen time Discovery shows up at a place and they're like, thank you next, please go away. And Michael just (laughs) happens to, because she obviously has the Vulcan experience, uh, is able to say like, no, 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 hold up. I'm going to invoke this thing that has never been heard before, which essentially is like sort of a trial, uh, but also one where apparently your lawyer can now argue against you or like really push (laughs) you on the stand to do something. Uh, I was a little confused about the circumstances behind it all, but I also wonder if that's because this is some like some much like uh, the what Latak Torai, the learning <laughs> disorder yes. that Spock had last season. Discovery is playing a bit loosey goosey when it comes to creating new stuff from the Vulcan perspective. Yep, let's pour out a bag of Scrabble tiles and come up with a new cultural yeah, construct. Like, now let's put the apostrophe here and here. Uh, yeah, when they were just going through like all the names, I was just like, I'm not even going to try to write these down. I'm just going to write who the descriptors are: the old priest, the young priest, and the one in between. The the, yep. the baby bear. There's is just right. <laughs> the the Romulan, the Vulcan, and the half Vulcan, half Romulan. Exactly, which like truly symbolizes like, oh, she's one. She you know she has feet in both camps. Uh, I mean, I guess one of the interesting things. I almost feel like I don't know. I guess to that point, Jess, if we had not gotten in and out of Navarre in one episode. How would your enjoyment have been affected either for the better or the, or the worse? If we had spent more time marinating in what a 
Romulo Vulcan unified society looked like? Would that have been more palatable than what it seems like here, which is, you know, come in, get the information, get out? Well, that's how that's how discovery rolls, Mike. It's like mm-hmm. we think we're going to be in something for the long haul and we're going to get comfortable. And it's like, nope, we're going to get the thing, get out, get a new thing. And that's really how this show has been. Every time we think we're seeing what the arc is, we are wrong and they resolve it immediately. So I think I would be surprised if we did that because I don't think they think it's important enough, but I do think they're thinking about what are the true fans going to be wondering about this new world and what can we tell them? Although they really did a lot of telling and not very much showing in this episode. And I thought that was a little bit sloppy on their part. And there was another reason that I thought this episode was maybe a little weaker than some of the other ones we've seen. Yeah. I mean, I think to your point that that's something that I was really salivating over because I love this idea of you know, uh, President Tarina mentioned it. Uh, basically, you know, in unifying, we had to sort of assimilate in a manner of speaking uh, or gentrify. Essentially, we had to do away with some of the ideals on both sides to find a common ground. Essentially, R.I.P. infamous Wrath of Khan quote, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Uh, hmm. But but I love this idea, even at the the Tiketan Cawther or whatever is called. Uh, yeah, where where it was obviously a Vulcan tradition but the advocate was a Romulan. Uh, and obviously there was, there was representation across it. And I, I, it just feels like because it was, it's such a big deal for those in Star Trek canon, it, it's almost selfish to me, but like, I wanted to see more of that. We got, a, we even just got a little smidge of the tensions at the end, right? When the three are started coming to blows. And we, to your point, we'd only been really told of like, wow, this planet is still fragile after being together for all these years. Like there's, there's disagreements around policy and politics and everything that we only got one glimpse of it. And it was enough for Michael to be like, never mind. I'm going to take my ball and go home. I think for me, it was just such a rich environment from a, from just a, a, a thought experiment perspective that I I totally see your point that I think it's not within discovery structure to necessarily settle down in one mm-hmm. place for a long time. But part of me is like, damn, I could have would have I would have liked to actually in the in the style of unifications parts one and two do like a unification parts three and four and hunker down on Navarre for a bit because I, I want to see what happens when you get my Romulans in your Vulcans. Yeah, I do, but I almost think that's not Discovery's not the place to do that. I mm. I want to see like maybe a six episode miniseries about that, like. Bring in, bring in one of the living Spocks and have him be Spock and set that up. And let's see the early days. Like, let's see how people get along or let's see, let's see the vote over Fedzik, Fedzik or whatever mm. I'm going to call it. Like, it's the Federation Brexit. Because that's an interesting thing as well. Like that's almost stuff out of the crown, right? Of like, yeah. these are the, the royals versus the uh, the government is like, OK, these are the Romulans versus the Vulcans. And the surprising turn, as you know, Admiral Fritch tells us early on that the Vulcans were the ones to make the surprisingly uh, emotional decision over the Romulans and be like, nope, we're getting out of the Federation. Bye bye. Yep. The Romulans voted remain and the Vulcans voted leave. Yeah, exactly. The world is just turned upside down in in that regard. I mean, I guess, you know, they they get in and out and they have this information in the form of, you know, SB19. I mean, do you think this was just sort of like a MacGuffin or do you think this is going to be like one of the smoking guns uh, that's going to be so much pertinence in the future? 
Yeah, I don't think we're meant to care too much about what the burn actually was or where the burn came from. It just gives Michael something to do. It gives her a quest. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think we're going to have any kind of satisfying explanation for the burn. She's just going to be like, well, the science got in the science and then it scienced. And then that was what the, that was how the burn happened. And I was thinking about this is actually maybe this is an overarching thought on discovery in general. And I'm not complaining because I love discovery. I love it and all its bonkersness. I love that it goes a million miles an hour. But one consequence of Star Trek going from procedural to season-long story arcs is that it sort of writes itself into a corner because Mm – any story arc that they are supporting has to be big enough to span multiple episodes. And the grand scale on which things happen in Star Trek means they pretty much have to save the entire universe every single season. And I wonder how long they can keep that up and have it still be a good show. Or if it's just going to be every single season, if we don't do the thing, then life in the universe as we know it will cease to exist. And then, oh, we did the thing and now there's another thing we have to do. Yeah, it it does very much seem like and and it also has to be something that just has such huge stakes and also be enough of a tantalizing mystery that when you get through the entire season, you're like, oh, man, what a payoff at the end. You know, it can't be the butler did it, essentially, which we got a little bit last season with Mm -hmm. Michael Burnham as the Red Angel. And and we will see this season. So I agree that they're, they're not doing themselves any favors necessarily with creating like one big season-long mystery, though I do feel like they've they've done a a good job in season three of at least providing, like, some distractions and shortcuts. I think, to my point earlier, that's what these sort of serve as. Like, I do not think SB19 is going to be the thing that that blows this all wide open, but I'd rather have these little deviations that more so serve as, to your point, like, faulty gestures to just take us to different parts of the universe in the pursuit of what the burn is than have to really focus on forwarding a plot that admittedly not might not pay off in the big way mm-hmm. we expect it to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I like that. I don't, maybe sometimes discovery bites off a little more than it can chew in that regard. Oh yeah. And especially the way that this show is structured where it just like, it hurls you across the universe. Like you're in the spore drive. Like we're going across the mycelial network every single week and they pack like a whole season's worth of interesting content into one episode it it is a hard pace to maintain and i mm. worry that we're going to eventually the stakes are going to feel like it's it's just too much too many times and then right. also what does that leave for other star trek series right you don't want it to become like space magruber where yeah. every episode is like oh my god there's a bomb about to go off you have 10 seconds to solve it michael burnham uh and and so she's going to be able to maybe to your point with the burn stuff it's sort of what gabrielle told her later on in the episode of like yeah, you find joy and duty in, in the Federation. And maybe to your point, it's like, yeah, Michael sort of knows it's, it's a lost cause or it might not be necessarily the big thing that she's been saying. But it gives her some happiness to be able to chase after something now that she feels pretty damn lost in the universe. Yep, it, it's good to have a hobby. Yeah, exactly. What, what did you make, by the way? Because obviously, uh, you know, once Michael Burnham and Discovery came back together, make no mistake, this is still definitively the Michael Burnham show. And it shows here where even like the, when they talk with Admiral Fridge, he's like, nope, even though you've been demoted and you don't you're, you're feeling mixed feelings about Starfleet, you are still going to represent us. But well, what did you think about Michael's sort of like tempestuous? Where am I? Who am I? Questions this episode. I don't know. I feel like maybe. 
maybe I'm not the right person to ask because I'm also somebody who has to put up with this in Fear the Walking Dead. Mm. But it's just so much of like, I don't know who I am anymore. I'm a this person. I'm that person. I'm, you know, I'm a bitch. I'm a mother. I'm a child. I'm a lover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Lannis Bernisette, if you will. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. It's definitely tropey and it's interesting to have her experience it at this point in time yeah like we talked about this that you were surprised how quickly she was able to just assimilate into the federation but i could also psychologically and realistically see it where like maybe this is something she, she sort of put in the back of her mind or not really thought of until she was chastised for acting on her own of like oh crap do I do I not like the Federation anymore? And so I do think that while wrote, I, I do think it was at least pulled up pretty well here. I think Sonequa Martin-Green always does a great job with this heavy stuff. I know it's, again, it's tropey. I, I always like the device of like, essentially pushing someone to, to admit something uh, that they've sort of been denying the entire time. Like, Gabrielle Burnham was definitely not the best mother, but a pretty damn good advocate and essentially just really getting Michael Burnham to, to do her you can't handle the truth speech about how like, yeah, you know, the Federation may suck sometimes, but we're all trying our best. And boy, did the Federation, I wouldn't say suck in this episode, but I guess sucked a uh, hundred years ago because, uh, you know, I think when we talked about the burn going back to the origin of it all, I think there's definitely been some credence lended to like, Hey, maybe Starfleet was doing some shady shit. And I think if, if we're take if we're believing Navarre's side of the whole SB19 thing, that kind of supports that theory a bit. And at least a century ago, the Federation was like, yeah, screw its possible impact on the universe. I want you to keep trying this highly unstable experimental form of transport. Yeah. And this is kind of, it's an interesting place that Star Trek has taken us to in the last I'm going to say four years, but mm-hmm, don't necessarily, mm-hmm. um, they don't necessarily take that as a commentary on anything about how, you know, even the institutions you trust are up to some shady shit. And I feel like that was, that's what Picard is all about. And oh, yeah. more and more disco has been going there. And I, especially when we got to the Vulcans saying science cannot be separated from cultural and political contest, contest, I was like, geez, like, are you sure you wrote this, you know, more than 10 months ago? Because it's certainly appropriate for the times. Yeah, they're there. I, I again keep going back to the, the NYCC panel and then Alex Kirkman's like, oh, yeah, we accidentally made some things relevant. And like, I put that in heavy quotations, but I do think to your point, relevant statements only became even more relevant with recent developments as to, you know, uh, as particularly how like judicial systems might work and how to Mm. separate or lack thereof or how to like pursue a means to an end, even from a a Starfleet perspective, because we've also seen that as well, right? Like Starfleet be a bit shrewd in what they pursue, maybe at the expense of, of feelings of its member planets. And also some something that's super interesting is, again, we don't know if the Federation caused the burn, but we sure as hell know that the Federation caused the dilithium shortage. Uh, and that's also just because President Torino was like, yeah, they were too selfless. They expand to like 350 planets. And when you have to promise each one of them, like, yeah, you're going to get a, at least one warp capable ship. That's a lot of dilithium to go around. Yeah, that, that's why imperialism. That's one of many reasons imperialism is not a good way to govern. 
Mm. I mean, it's it's a very good point of, you know, saying like, oh, yes, we've taken this over. Now, please have all our supplies. You know, once the supplies run out, it still does not answer the question of that whole that lithium recrystallizer that we got from Poe and the Zahians mm-hmm. in season two. But who knows? Maybe the maybe Starfleet like has that under wraps and they wanted to keep a hold on the economy or lack thereof of dilithium and just screw the pooch on it entirely. Yeah. I mean, once capitalism reenters the picture, all the bets are off. Yeah, exactly. That that's when things just truly go all sorts of which ways uh wonky. Did you like the um I I've you know I'm sort of jarring my Did you like seeing the Leonard Nimoy archival footage? Like I know we got glimpses of this in the previously on with with the events of the menagerie and the cage, but to see Nimoy in disco proper in hollow form. How how did that feel for you? I loved that. I was really happy to see Nimoy and I I like that they honored him. I think they properly yeah. honored him here. And to talk about Spock, um, and again, this is one of those weird things where I feel like, I, I feel like maybe books should have been like, oh, oh, the Spock you keep talking about that's your brother. I didn't realize he was that Spock. Right, exactly. Like, oh, everyone names their kids Spock nowadays after like yeah. the, the great hero from, you know, centuries ago. But that's the interesting thing as well is that. We experienced this also with uh, Saru finding out that Kaminar has been inducted into the Federation. This idea of like finding out your legacy supersedes your time here on whatever Earth you may be. I think it's I think it's in Hamilton where he says like, "What is legacy? It's planting seeds in a ground that you never see to grow." Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea of like, and and I love that they showed that archival footage is taken from one of Spock's final lines, a speech that he has at the end of Unification Part Two, where mm-hmm. he comes out and basically says like. Yeah, you know, we've stymied this for now. They prevented Sela from a Romulan takeover of the Vulcan government using uh, a hologram of, of Spock. But he basically says, like, yeah, you know what? Progress is a carousel, and it is moving very, very slowly right now. Uh, but I, I'm confident it's going to happen in time. And I, I agree. I think that having it eventually happen, albeit years and years after the fact, is a great honoring of not only the character of Spock, but also of Leonard Nimoy, who obviously died shortly before Star Trek Discovery. I don't even know if Star Trek Discovery was in production. Uh, yeah, I when, don't think it was. Yeah, when Nimoy died. And so I think it's, it's a great way to pay tribute to the fact that you technically have a Spock in your canon, but this is a great way to sort of honor the actor proper without needing to pull a, a Star Trek 09 and like cross universes. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, and it's an easy way to point out that we're all on that same continuum. And yeah. yeah. Uh, also, I like the shout out to the Carousel of Progress. It's my favorite <laughs> ride at Disney World. And I, I also want to add that I have seen Unification 1 and 2. Yes. Um, I was being a little facetious up top. And back in the day, nobody cared about episode titles, yeah. especially when you had to catch things on television when they were on. And I think some of our listenership may not remember those days. But, you know, when I was a kid, you couldn't – if you had a VCR, you might be able to watch something after it was on. Otherwise, it was gone. And you didn't know what everything you watched was called the way you do now. Right. That's why this, That's why the Friends, you know, episode naming convention was the one with blank. And, yeah. and that's usually the way that people offhandedly refer to stuff like, yeah, you know, uh, the the one where Spock came back and, and talked with Picard. That's Unification Parts 1 and 2. But I, yeah. I don't think – Maybe even the most devout Trekkies back then might not necessarily have remembered, like, from memory what all those episode titles were. Right. Like, I, I can name, like, maybe three or four, three or four TNG episodes. I can tell you the names of them off the top of my head. And that's if you count the best of both worlds as two. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's that's another it's you know, it's a big two-parter as well. And it's interesting because I think it introduced a lot of stuff. You know, you would imagine that they wanted two-parter because it's Spock, it's Nimoy back on. This is not mm-hmm. our, our sort of like James Doohan. Like, yeah, we'll bring him in for an episode and then we can sort of do away with him. This was a, a big deal. But also there were there was a lot going on with the character of Sela who was was sort of trying to use unification in her own way. And that's another reason why this is maybe something I want to see more on. And I love your point about it maybe even being like a short trek or, or series of episodes later on is because there must have been so much shit that went down in even after unification started of like a bunch of shady Romulans and or Vulcans wanting to manipulate the other side to get what they want. It just seems like it could be its own political drama. Essentially. Oh, yeah. Like if we're getting if we're getting our own house of cards in the Star Trek universe, it is absolutely about the Vulcan Romulan reunification. And now I desperately want to see that. Yeah, it's almost like if you ask the Hatfield and the McCoys, like, okay, you guys are going to move into one house now, uh, have fun. Like that's that's essentially you can make a reality show. Uh, I'm sure they did back then about we took five <laughs> Vulcans, put them in a house with five Romulans. Let's see what happens. The real okay, now- world, Navarre. Now I want to see that even more. <laughs> we got a lot of Trek, you know, coming up. Did you notice, uh, I don't know if you know, Jess, but I think all three CBS Star Trek series are currently in production right now, or at least going to be shortly in production. Somehow, some way this is happening. You know, I, I, I suspected before this that we weren't living in the darkest timeline. And, you know, this news is the second greatest news I've heard this month. Yeah, I mean, so I know that a while ago I saw I think Jack Quaid had tweeted like he was recording lines in like his closet in a makeshift recording studio. I know there was news a few weeks ago that Disco had started production in Toronto. I believe uh, Doug Jones like shaved his head prominently to be like, yep, I'm going back into the prosthetics, baby. (laughs) Say goodbye to my skin complexion. And hello to the loaf. Exactly. And I think speaking of the Coat Milat, uh, even Ivagora, who plays uh, who plays Elnor on Star Trek Picard, I think he either hinted or outright said that I think in January 2021 is when they're going to start production on Picard season two. I'm, I'm very excited for Picard season two. Yeah. For so, real. I mean, that it's interesting because I had thought for a while because we're we're now over halfway through the season. So we are very much looking down the barrel end of only about a month and a half left of our big streak of, of Star Trek. I had thought that, you know, this was going to be our feast before our famine, but it does seem like, knock on wood, if if they are doing things safely, that we could very easily get Star Trek in 2021. I think we're at least going to get lower decks, and we may even get some disco at the end of 2021 if, if things work the way they do. That would be absolutely amazing, Mike. And it's nice that at least one CBS property has some light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. And, you know, they, 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 uh, they said they, they've sought, you know, other locations as well and other stipulations. But yeah, uh, no voting out any sort of Star Trek seasons for 2021. Fingers crossed at the moment. I guess speaking of, uh, I mean, not voting out because Michael wasn't voted out, but let's talk about her replacement because we put forward the short list. Last week, Jess, and I and I said that in my heart of hearts, I, I thought it would be Tilly, and I was just as stunned to find out that I was actually right with that one. I did not think they would do that. Yeah, this is this is like watching this is like watching the Great British Baking Show finale all over again. It's like it's kind of the person we secretly want it to be, it's yeah. the person we think maybe deserves it the most, but we don't think that the show is going to recognize it. And then the show did, and it's a good week for redheads, right? 
Oh man, it's a good it's a good week to be a redhead. I I'm very surprised because this also would have seemed to a point you made before. This would have seemed like a season finale storyline. Yeah. Or even like what they did sometimes in TNG when they like cut away for a portion of time going into the season premiere of like, oh, I'm thinking particularly of like seasons, season one into two when they had that whole panning shot to the Enterprise. And it's like, wow, Riker has a beard. Jordy's a lieutenant now. Worf has been, you know, uh, Tasha Yar's dead. So Worf has a, has a promotion now. Like they really sort of get through the big stuff to start the season or end the previous season. So to have Tilly get her big promotion to EXO halfway through the season just shows how unconventional Discovery can be in every sense of the word. Yeah, they definitely they definitely don't worry so much about pacing. They don't need to have to they don't need to have the big battle scene in episode nine. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. So to that point, I've seen some takes come on the on the Trek spirit come about in the past couple of days. Jess, is this just a direct at of Harry Kim? Is this just really like sh- <laughs> shaming him, throwing under the bus of like, look at you, little ensign, spent seven years on the damn ship and you did nothing. This girl didn't even make it out of the command training program. And here she is, first officer of the ship. Yeah, and especially Harry Kim being on a ship where ranks and starfleet protocol could be a little more loosey-goosey and he exactly. still didn't manage it so exactly that, yeah, like, it is like, like oh we're gonna fill our ship with like uh you know space marauders and terrorists and people we just sort of picked up out of nowhere but you're still gonna be on the low rung here ensign harry kim i get maybe it just shows that you know uh there's a lot to quibble about with saru's captainship maybe Maybe Captain Janeway is in both good and bad ways more shrewd of a captain when it comes to rank and file than Saru is. Yeah, and Saru himself, he's new to the captain in game, and I don't think Janeway was quite so fresh out of fresh out of the academy. No, definitely not. It was a new situation, but definitely uh she she has worn those pips well. So yeah, I mean now that we've actually seen the decision take part, I mean, did you agree with it? Because I've also seen people look at it on paper and say this is pretty ridiculous that she is one of the lowest ranking people on the ship and now she is going to be their boss to you know sort of a very stamet style reaction of like this is weird and frankly disturbing yes and put a pin in the word ridiculous because i was about to say this you can't complain about things being ridiculous on a show where they travel with space mushrooms to instantaneously <laughs> to anywhere in the galaxy and they just jumped 930 years into the future. Put a pin in that because there is something on this episode that was ridiculous and we'll get to it. <laughs> so there's even a limit to that end. Yes, there is a ridiculous thing that happened on this show and I will I will rant about it fully in a minute. But to your point, Mike, I think they're in extraordinary circumstances and Saru wants someone by his side that he trusts. And he thought that person was Michael Burnham mm-hmm. inexplicably because Michael Burnham has shown that she, that if she really doesn't agree with her captain, she's not going to give any, any F's about right. throwing them to the, throwing them to the Klingons as it were. Yeah. She is the scorpion of all scorpions when it comes to first officers. Yeah. I, yeah, she really is. And, Saru's threat ganglia should have been on high alert. But yeah, I mean, or I mean lack thereof. I've I've also seen it bandied about as well, not to derail things too much. And I think I forget if we talked about this as well, that because he lost his threat ganglia during his uh Vaharai, the the Kelpian puberty that he went through, that maybe that has caused him to make less rational decisions, or at least less fear motivated decisions, which has led to some questionable stuff the past few episodes. 
It's a good point, although I always felt like the threat ganglia were also a metaphor. Or, you know, the true threat ganglia are the enemies we encounter along the way. Mm, interesting. Almost like the Wizard of Oz. Like, you had the threat ganglia all along. It was just right up here instead of, you know, uh, veering off the side of your head. Yeah, shooting off of you like porcupine quills. Yeah, exactly. But I, I, I agree, and I brought this up a little bit last week, that I, I do think Tilly's circumstances and the way she comports herself, I think, I think supersede a bit of rank now it's tough because we even talked about this last week that i'm sure there were far more (laughs) capable people who had the experience and skills to serve as a number one especially in like a pseudo time of crisis or at least a high pressure situation like this and so to have quirky tilly serve as the number one is a little weird but i mean look no further than the way this that plot line ends in this episode which is essentially the entire bridge crew being like we love you tilly Go Tilly. And considering that that's her main job is like to be the head of that bridge crew, if she's getting the endorsement from the people she is going to be lording over, I think that's all she needs. Yeah, it's true. And that's it's also testament to how much she has grown as a character and how logically that has progressed. Because Mm. she started out as, you know, she was brand new and she was weird and nobody wanted to room with her and she couldn't make friends. And now she's got the entire ship saying, we want you to be in charge of us. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, exactly. And I think maybe it just shows to what Michael brought up a couple of episodes ago of just how like amorphous the disco crew, especially those that are like our captain nor first officer are of wow, we've been through the ringer together and then some, like, we are really one unit that if one of us does well, we all do well, which is good. You know, especially when we had our season one-esque Stamets reaction to Tilly, I would have thought this could have provided a track for some drama or some hostility towards Tilly. And who knows? uh, Or hostility. Maybe (laughs) in future episodes, we'll see that, like, when she gets thrown into command, she's going to muff it up a couple of times, but I, I was very happy to see. Yeah, it was a little little chintzy. And again, you would think in any other logical circumstances, you would you would, you know, take on somebody who has had at least a bit of experience in the captain's chair over Tilly who has none. But if everyone's supportive of this essential upgrade in her Starfleet internship at this point, I'm I'm excited to see where it takes us. Yeah, and you know, he can always go back to the well if he needs someone new to fill the role. But I think, I think she's ready for it. And I think, I think he's, I think he's made a good choice here. I think for this universe at this moment, this is the person he wants. But before we, before we switch gears and talk about the illogical things that happened this episode, let's take a moment to hear from some more of our sponsors. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And we're back. So, segueing out of the logical, we've talked about the Vulcans. They're always very logical. We've talked about Saru's choice and why it is logical. Let's talk about the completely illogical bonkers thing this episode. <laughs> Has it fallen out of the sky and been raised by warrior nuns, perhaps? Yes. I'm talking about the fact that here's a character that part of the mythology is she dead and she's not dead. And mm. I think you get one of these per series, Lifetime. And we kind of already got it with Hugh Culber. And now we're going back to that well. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say there's another network drama that has made the mistake of doing this twice. Um, and I'm not going to name names here, but it's on NBC and it's made me, made me so angry. I'm not watching the show anymore. Wow. But honestly, I know this is a bonkers thing, but you're not a soap opera. You're a TV drama. You have some prestige. You are better than this. You don't need to bring people back from the dead all the time. I do. I mean, listen, as someone who followed Once Upon a Time to a certain extent, I agree that when it comes to the concept of death, even from a science fiction or mythical perspective, there is a very, very high chance you can get soapy with that, with this idea of, I don't know, maybe it's because for a lot of us, death, unlike the Barzans, we see death as sort of like, to quote Stamets last episode, like a limit of, okay, once this character has died, there there is a permanence to it. And to not have that just feels a little off. And so, of course, what Jess is speaking about is that after searching for her or making mention of her, at least for the entire season, Michael's mama, Gabrielle Burnham, is back. It's interesting, Jess, that you said, you know, you can do this once because we technically kind of already did it once with Gabrielle Burnham. So so the yeah, whole true. story about Gabrielle Burnham, which I had sort of forgotten about, admittedly, until reading back up on stuff in preparation for what I was writing this week, is that so Gabrielle Burnham. Michael's mother, Michael believed, died in this Klingon attack on Mars, uh, you know, when she was a very little girl and has essentially been an orphan since then. That's how she was raised on Vulcan. Turns out that Michael Burnham's parents were working with Section 31 on something called Project Daedalus, which was creating this Red Angel suit for the use of time travel. And so when the Klingons attacked... Uh, essentially, you know, Gabriel Burnham's like, oh, no, and just, you know, noped the hell out of there and started time traveling. She jumped, I think she said 940 years into the future to this planet called Terralisium. And then, but she saw this universe sort of Terminator style where control had wiped out all sentient life and it was a wasteland. And so she said, okay, now I'm going to jump back and try to prevent that from happening. And apparently she did show hundreds and hundreds of times the problem was she could never stay in one time for too long. It always snapped her back like an elastic band back to Terralisium at that point in time. So when Michael Burnham shows up in this time period, one of the reasons why she went in so late is because she was like, OK, I know that if we take Discovery and the Sphere data into this time, I'll see my mother, I'll see Terralisium, you know, we'll be fine. And she had not seen her up to this point. And I guess in changing the timeline... Gabrielle Burnham did not end up on Terralisium. She, like, crash-landed on another planet, got raised by the Co-op Milot, and now she is a resident of Navarre. I don't know how long she's been there. So, again, you know, she has technically pulled this act once before of she was dead, but now is actually alive. This is, I guess, more so, like, 
we don't know where she is. Oh, she's here, but in a different way than we imagined. Yeah, that's oddly specific. And I feel like we closed the book on that story last season, only to reopen it at this point. And also, the Vulcans are very logical. I really feel like they would be the first to call out a huge conflict of interest when your advocate is your own mother, no matter how candorific the Kawat Mulat are supposed to be. And I also wonder, even just with the Gabriel Burnham of it all, because, you know, uh, Admiral Fridge told Saru, like, even your existence is in violation of so many temporal accords. Did that not apply to Navarre? Were they just like, oh, we'll, keep, we'll keep you under wraps because we like you and just no, don't say you're a time traveler? Yeah, there's that, too, because they everybody was. I, and again, this is testament to how bad communication is around these parts from both a literal and a metaphorical standpoint. Um, these people are bad communicators and they are, they do not have access to the communication they used to have. Mm. But it sure seemed like the crew of Disco and Michael Burnham have been treated like anomalies. They're like, well, you know, the temporal accords say you can't do this and you're the first time traveler we've ever run into. It never happens. And it's like, okay, well, if we're thinking about people traveling through time, it's the past. They don't know that they're violating accords. And also, if people are dropping out of the sky from the past all the time, which they apparently are, why is it such a big deal when they do? And nobody seems to have mentioned, oh, yeah, somebody else fell out of the sky. This was a thing that happened before. We get time travelers all the time. Here's what we do with time travelers. Everybody knows it's possible, and yet they're treating Discovery like it's some kind of circus freak. And it's like, oh, no, the Romulans got one of those, too. So (laughs) it's like we have a Hulk, and we also have a Hulk. Could it be that maybe because Navarre was so secretive, especially when sort of like Earth, uh, when they pulled away from the Federation, they like put up a bunch of walls or, or mm-hmm. I guess uh, mines in this case that they were just like, yeah, we're not going to tell anybody anything, including the secret time traveler that we have now ingratiated the only human who is assumingly living on Navarre at this point. Yeah, and it could be sort of like, well, you're going to go to the Romulan nunnery and not bother anyone. So mm. I guess it's all right. You can stick around. Yeah, that's true. Like quite, quite logical for you to just stay in your place and, and really keep to yourself. I don't know. I was just, it was surprising and albeit a bit random. Cause I think to your point, my assumption had been that like we were done with Gabrielle Burnham. I mean, it really felt like they had this yeah. big moment in season two where like they saw each other briefly, but then she got sucked back. Uh, and so I, I'd all but put away this idea of like, yeah, we're going to see Sonia Sohn again. And I love me some Sonia Sohn. So to have her sort of emerge as, as her, her advocate was very interesting. And I mean, this was the very definition of tough love, right? Where Michael's like, I'm so glad you're here, mom. Let me spill my guts about all the the, the bad shit I'm feeling. And she's like, great. I'm going to use that against you right now in the next five minutes. Yeah, it was like um, she's not going to be she's not going to be given an inch by any of these people until she does a whole monologue like chunk with his hand in the blender in the Goonies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you think, you know, we, we sort of talked about this with Nan as well when she left the show. But I mean, Gabrielle Burnham was very adamant about, hey, great seeing you. Uh, I'm going to stay back because I am technically have a job here. But like, you know where to find me. Do you think she's going to recur in any capacity or do you think this might be like a, 
hey, she'll swoop in at the 11th hour or make like a special guest appearance if, if they want her to. I mean, she's there if they want her, but she also, you know, Co-op and Lot have a mission. Yeah. And she can't just keep stepping in to protect Michael Burnham because that's not really their way. Though I don't know. Michael is one for getting herself into lost causes. She might blend in more with the Co-op Milot than she thinks. Like, Great. All right. I'll just do something really like hasty and something. Well, I'm going to back ourselves purposely into a corner. So then then you have to show up and we can have some nice mother daughter time. Yeah, I guess that's fair. I'm just going to create a lost cause out of thin air. So you have to come and help me. That's a very Michael Burnham thing. Um, and also Michael Burnham would last about 30 seconds in the co-op lot. Yeah, and that's that's a sad thing as well, is we've gotten so much great Michelle Yeoh fighting. I would have loved to see some Sonya Stone fighting this episode, because we mm-hmm. saw from Picard, and even just from Elnor's character, just how freaking badass the Co-op yep. Lot is. It kind of sucks to put them in a courtroom for an entire episode. Well, look, Mike, there's different kinds of fighting, and the Co-op Lot have to be prepared for anything, and some days... That's, you know, you get to use all of your mixed martial arts skills, and some days it means you got to go into the courtroom and wear a suit and argue a case. Yeah, do you think she drew the short straw and it didn't so happen that she knew that Michael was on trial? She was like, damn it, I have to, oh, okay, this is a surprise. I know this one. Yeah, I'll take that. Uh, yeah, you know, there's all kinds of heroes, Mike. Yeah, exactly. I also want to say on, on the note of Michael, uh, and I know that Brendan Fitzpatrick pointed this out as well. I don't know. Say what you want to about the the plot lines and maybe the the, the emotions behind the characters. For some reason, the the Tilly Michael stuff this episode I really liked. Maybe it's because we haven't seen too much of these characters interacting with each other. But like, for instance, we sort of got like our explainy expositional scene in the very beginning when they're talking about SB nineteen. But it sort of is bookended by Tilly like chastising Michael, but also like like slapping her on the wrist, but also being like. Hey, I had to rat you out because I didn't know what what you were going to do for the ship. And that, to your point, is sort of showing Tilly's maturity. But it's interesting to do a check in with these characters uh, to see, like, how their relationship has changed, but also simultaneously they remain the same since they were bunkmates back on, you know, season one version of Disco. Yeah, and I appreciate that the show has not forgotten that either. Like, these are going to be Tilly's going to be one of the first people that Burnham comes to anytime she's got a, a problem. And Mm -hmm. they need to acknowledge that this, that what happened last episode really does have repercussions on their friendship, which I think a sloppier show would have forgotten all of that connection. Like she was really Michael's first friend on Disco. And Michael in a lot of ways was her first friend. Yeah, exactly. You could argue maybe they're like each other's best friends, uh, though I don't know how Book comes into the picture. And I did love, again, during that, like, for she's a jolly good fellow scene that Michael walks in and like she she very cutely says, like, oh, did I miss the say yes part? And it's very clear, like, (laughs) she was in the know the entire time. Uh, And, you know, obviously it could have been, like you said, an awkward situation that could have gotten dragged out for weeks of like, Michael is, is resentful of Tilly for taking her spot. But Michael's like, it's cool. I get it. You're going to be amazing. I've got my own stuff to do. I'm not leaving. And and so it was like a very short character distillation. But to your point, you know, we talked about this in episode four. One of the reasons why I felt it was so strong is because it was so character forward rather than plot forward. And, and I like our instances of that, particularly in this episode, because, yes, there's a lot of big stakes happening but but you need to take a recognition of the ingredients behind that stake if you will and i think we got that in those couple of scenes here yeah and the show has a very clear idea the writers have a very clear idea of what happens 
what kind of conversation would any two characters have about anything that happens on the show? Mm-hmm. And I think that really shows in even a tiny interaction like this one. We should also ask, I guess, speaking of question marks moving forward, I mean, even Book pointed this out. What the hell's going to happen to him? Is he just going to hang out in that shuttle bay for the rest of the season? It's a good question. I think he'd like to get back to couriering or have something to do anyway. He's not just going to chill out with his cat for the rest of his life. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I, capitalism now. He's got to make money somehow. I, the, I guess the one advantage they have in having book ship with them is they can now use that as like an undercover ship for any mm-hmm. mission. Because obviously, if you are a big ass Starfleet vessel carrying like the only supply of dilithium that's going to exist in quite some time, you are going to be a moving target. And so I can imagine if they're trying to do like scouting missions, I could imagine using him and his ship. It's tough, though, because like he said, he's like, listen, uh, I don't fit in here. Let's go somewhere together. I think there's there's a really funny exchange in the beginning and they're in their postcoital uh you know bed talk when Michael goes like, but where would we go? And he just goes, Space. <laughs> yeah. Like, did you see look around us at the vast emptiness of literally anywhere we can go? And I do wonder if Admiral Fridge is becoming more trusting in Saru and Discovery, where he's saying, like, make your own decisions, deal with it on your own. I don't think he would blanch as much as you might think of this idea of like, yeah, we picked up this courier guy like he's cool. We could totally use him uh, in missions. Yeah, I know he's not like technically Federation, but like we trust him. So therefore, you should trust him by proxy. I feel like we trust him. So you should trust him by proxy is kind of where this show is screwing up in many, many respects. So, (gasps) yeah, I think. I think that's going to be harder to do in a world where trust is not implied with every single thing they do. Uh, however, I do, I do appreciate this is almost like they have a runabout that doesn't even have Federation bumper stickers on it. Oh my God. I love that. Yeah. It's almost like the opposite of the De- Defiant, right? Which is like a, a, like a jalopy of a, of a Starfleet vessel brought onto this very nebulous station. This is a Federation vessel that is now commandeering this this vessel that really has no markings or affiliation to it, that they can now use to slip in and slip out during these missions in case they don't want to draw focus. Yeah. It's like the, they could use it with the radar gun if they want to set up a speed trap. Yeah, exactly. And I would say, you know, before they had the big upgrades last episode, like, Oh yeah, it has the the 32nd century technology that they, they, they don't, but Everyone's on the same page now. So unfortunately, Booker, your cool programmable matter stuff does not put you a, a, hit, a head above the, the disco, unfortunately. They're still the yeah. better ship overall. No, everybody's got that. It'd be like bursting into a room being like, I have a cell phone. <laughs> it's like in 1998, that probably would have been much cooler than it is in 2020. Mm. Do you think that is Michael going to like move in with Book on the ship? Do you think Book will be dare caught within Michael's quarters on, on discovery. Like, cause that's going to be an interesting situation too, of like, they're not necessarily living together, but he is technically cohabitating on her ship, just in a ship within that ship right now. now look, Mike, they just did it for the first time after flirting for an entire year. <gasps> I mean, don't be back in the U-Haul up to the space station yet. He is not moving in with her. I don't even think they've DTR'd. Exactly. Like, uh, let's go to the holodeck and count out baseball bases to figure out where they are at this point in terms of their relationship. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. And I do not want to put the cart before the hollow horse in that <laughs> regard. But uh, I, I was just interested because, you know, book does the episode ends with book telling Michael, like, I'm staying because you feel like home. 
and she says same, which made me also like the Star Wars part of my brain is like, oh my god, they're related. Oh my god, this is the big twist. Uh, that's why they feel like home. But it, it's meant to imply, you know, obviously that's why he's staying on. But does that mean that is he just going to, you know, hang out in his little bachelor pad and she'll come around and visit when she wants to have a chat with him? Yeah. And what's he going to do in the meantime? He's just going to hang out and like pet his cat and then like, yeah. oh, yeah. Well, I think speaking of character matchups, that could be interesting. If we do get some B plots later on of like, you know, uh, maybe they're shorthanded in engineering and like Jet Reno and Liss book to help, <laughs> like, you know, your way around programmable matter, like help us with this stuff. I think that could be very fun to like sort of bring him in as a third party, almost like sometimes when they got like Quark involved in the events of Deep Space Nine, yep. where like he's really a neutral party to everything. But because he's so affiliated with all these Starfleet people, he ends up getting dragged into stuff. I would actually like to see that happen for comedic purposes with Book. Yeah, and I think he'd like roll his eyes the entire time. Like, this is not what I signed up for. There's space worms to save. I could be out there doing good in the universe. Instead, I'm helping you fix a thing. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm only here because my girlfriend likes you guys. <laughs> yeah i mean, I mean how many times the, that's essentially what book has to do right he's he's the the plus one who gets brought along to like the friends hanging out and now has to like try to to fit his way in even if he's not up and up on all the lingo or all the nerdy stuff they're obsessed with yeah it's like yeah it's like everybody everybody is friends with your girlfriend but you have nothing in common with any of them except her and could be very awkward. Yeah, and also your girlfriend's friends and your girlfriend travel through time a hundred years. So you're trying to like also catch them up on everything at the same time. There's a lot of a lot of stuff being juggled. Yeah, it is. It's it's culture shock. It is. But you know, that's an interesting segue um from one relationship to another across cultures. Um are we to inf- are we to infer that Saru was hitting on the president of Vulcan? Yeah, so I'm not sure. I really am not sure. I totally saw it as well, because again, going back to the NYCC panel. Someone asked, like, will Saru ever find romantic interest? And I was like, that's a weird question, because I, I personally have sort of seen Kelpians as asexual creatures, personally. Yeah. Do they even have genitals? Uh, I mean, I don't, God help us. I don't even want to know where those are. Uh, everything <laughs> is still, like, bulbousy and tenderly on them, uh, if you've ever seen his hands. But, yeah, it's interesting, you know. Uh, you know, he decided to roll out the welcome wagon for President Tarina, but... Yeah, the the way it's more so about the way she regarded him than vice versa, because otherwise it could just be like, yeah, he was being nice. You know, he was having conversations with her. He was trying to give her the soft pitch on this is why you should reenter the Federation, which which she sort of gave like a maybe to. But I was more so reading the way Tarina was reacting, which she started off very Vulcan like cold, but warmed up greatly by the end of it. So maybe it's more so that she is putting out signals that he might or might not be receptive of. Yeah, it's true. Maybe he was, maybe it's like one of those things where you're like, hey, anytime you're in town, stop by, we'll hang out. And then somebody actually does come to town. Yeah. I, and I'm just wondering, you know, uh, I mean, I don't think we've ever seen a Vulcan Kelpied crossover. God, I'm not going to deviant art to answer that question, but <laughs> it's just, it's an interesting image. Who would have thought that I maybe would we would have seen more like goo goo eyes from Saru. Uh, from a cinematography perspective, if that had been a thing. But you know what? I could ship it. I could see something where, like, Tarina and Saru, because I think Tarina had a lot of respect for Saru. The question is, does that segue into any sort of emotional interest as well? Well, and they certainly have a lot to bond over. I mean, you saw them kind of talking to each other like, yeah, oh, so Michael Burnham has also forced you into a corner you can't get out of. And like, oh, yeah, that's it happens to me all the time. You know, here's how you deal with it. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, 
Also, uh, you give away exposition like much less uh, browferingly than my boss and the admiral. Like, it'd be great to have you around just so you could like tell me all these stories about the burn where I don't feel like I'm being talked down to by the admiral who just feels like he's he's you know doing me a favor by having me talk to him for a second. Yeah, you know, it's it's illogical to make you feel small when I'm telling you about the thousand years of history you've missed, of course. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing is that, you know, we talked about this again with Saru's character is that he's very by the book, at least in the way that he regards a lot of protocol. So, you know, maybe these are these two are have a lot more in common than you you may think from a Vulcan and a Kelpian. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm into it. I, this is my new ship. Um, although Saru's going to have to work on his Vulcan pronunciations a little bit because I think maybe my favorite moment of the entire episode was when he butchered the pronunciation of to Calentet. Oh, I didn't know that. Or I didn't yeah, pick like, that up. They all come in and he's, he totally trips over it and says it incorrectly. And I'm like, that's got to be deliberate. That's pretty great. Yeah. Maybe the study of Vulcan languages was like, uh, that was his worst subject at the academy. And he's just like, what am I ever going to use this? Yeah. I mean, everybody's got universal translators. It yeah, never comes up. The Vulcans are part of the Federation. They're never going to leave. I'm never going to have to encounter a situation where I have to convince them to come back by like invoking some ancient Vulcan traditions and words. The, this, I'm going to sleep through this class and focus on trimming the plants instead. Yeah, he was he was absent that day. So, do you have any more <laughs> tiny things you want to bring up? Because I have a couple of tiny things. Yeah, I'm I'm good with my tiny things. So, tiny away. All right, one nice tiny thing: uh, the mention of the USS Yelchin. I thought that was a really nice shout out to an actor oh, yeah. who's no longer with us. Yeah, that was, I mean, a couple episodes after we got the whole uh, Eisenberg class USS Nog, it's another great shout out, along with the Letter Nimoy stuff of like acknowledging the, the Trek actors that, that paved the way to where we are now. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, I, I love those little Easter eggs. And um, then I also, here's a thing that I really enjoyed about Sonequa Martin Green's pronunciations and just the like the the way that she there's some idiosyncratic things she does and one of the things she does she has the incredulous whisper mm. and the way that she says particular things it's just like just a mode that she snaps into that's very uniquely her and you hear you get it this episode when she she like looks up and her eyes go wide she's like what happened and like, it's the one time I feel like she veers on overacting. But it's mm. like so it's so funny and endearing when it happens. And like, oh, oh, yeah, we're in we're in incredulous whisper mode. Yes. Nico Martin Green, like she is. I mean, it's interesting because she is by far given the most to do out of this cast. But by proxy, since we are watching her the most out of any actor on this cast, we are picking up much more of her idiosyncrasies. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the hush whisper, the like tears in her eyes, like wide eyed, shaking her head. When she's like about to break with something like there's she has a lot of ticks in her acting, which I don't think is bad whatsoever. All actors have ticks. But I think because this show has become maybe since TOS, like the most centric around a few particular characters, we were getting so much Michael Burnham that lover writer, you can't help but pick up on some of the things Sneak with Martin Green is. And I, yeah, I agree. I've, I've, I've always loved uh, to a certain extent that sort of like, oh, my God. I can't believe it. That just like, <laughs> like the more intense, yet more quiet you are to symbolize like yeah. how insular I'm like, I'm, my mind is blown and I'm trying to, to talk it out right now, but not at a loud volume whatsoever. I feel like this is next to the smell the fart acting of the Joey Triviani school. 
Yeah, exactly. Like that's that's the next lesson. Cinco Margarine actually was a, a TA with Joey Tribbiani. They just didn't show it at the time. Yeah, and it's really funny because it is the most Sonequa Martin Green we've ever gotten. And I, you know, I loved her on The Walking Dead. I thought she was great, and she definitely there's a couple of those things that she definitely brought to Sasha when she was on that program. But you don't notice it. You don't pick up on it as much when she's one of twenty. Exactly. That's the thing is she really is sort of like honestly one of one at yeah. this point. Where I would say like it's Michael Burnham one. I would say I would probably say like Saru two. And then, like, Tilly Stamets, you know, Giorgio, three, Book, f- Colbert, four, everyone else, five. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that sort of is, is the tiering of everything. So when you're going to have someone front and center so much, even if they're doing great stuff, you're going to pick on the pick out the little ways that they say things or the little things that they do, because if they take up, you know, 30 minutes of a 52 minute episode, that that just comes with the territory. To that point, is it kind of unfair of the show to expect us to remember who all those other randos are? Because sometimes I feel like anytime one of them surfaces, I'm being graded on it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's why I think they did the the sort of shoehorn previously on, right? Sometimes with like, Mm -hmm. my God, your character from background scene in episode two of season two. Oh, you're back now. So now we, we sort of remember you. I guess it saves people the trip to memory alpha to be like, who the heck is this person? But to your point, it still doesn't help when we go around the bridge and we're like, that was the Nielsen for the longest time with me of like, is she yeah. new? No, wait, this was old Arium. Uh, so I think, you know, we, we talked about this before, unless they do a non and say, we're going to dedicate an episode to a bridge crew member. Just expect that a lot more of, all right, I guess I have to keep a running tally of who those people are and what they're doing and the one personality quirk they've been imbued with for this particular series. Yeah. Someday this is going to be important, Mike. So you've got to be like, that's Reese. That's Owo. You know, that's Detmer. That's Nielsen. Yeah. Instead of just like bridge crew member number five. Yeah. Like Joyce from the amazing race. Yeah, exactly. Or like the, um, the, the one that has like the giant head that kind of looks like one of the creatures from, um, from the last of us that has like the fungal head that I forget what I, I, that's the thing. He's perfect example. I think he has a name. I do not remember it. I do not remember his species. I don't remember what he's doing there, but I mean, that was also Linus for the longest time. And he has also, he has sort of upgraded his own rank as well. Well, you know, as soon as you bang one of the main cast, you're all, you're right up there. Yeah, you bang one of the main cast, you try, you almost interrupt banging two of the other cast members. Like, Linus has, has made his mark, and so maybe we'll see some other people make their mark in hopefully less, uh, less romantic, interrupting ways, uh, so that everyone can sort of get the, some peace and quiet or lack thereof on the ship. Yep. So, speaking of interrupting with people from other areas of the ship, we should talk a lot about what else is going on on post-show recaps. Because we have a busy time. And tell tell us about what you're doing over there, Mike. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, of course, Josh Wrigler and I are going down the hatch on a post-show recast. We just put out a nice little post-Thanksgiving treat talking about speaking of time travel. But on a an episode surprisingly devoid of time travel, we are talking about Catch-22, a Desmond Hume episode where Desmond Hume is actually sort of like Gabrielle Burnham in that he sees a future and is trying to either prevent it or cause it. Lots of discussion in there, so be sure to check that out. And of course, Jess, I know that you are finishing up your Walking Dead world, just in general, not even World Beyond coverage for 2020. As I believe Walking Dead World Beyond has a two-episode finale coming up this Sunday? It absolutely does. It's going to coming up this Sunday night. We're going to bid farewell for now to Walking Dead World Beyond. And 
it is a banger of an episode. I am really excited to talk about it with Josh Wiggler and Brandon Chappelle on Monday, and that will be in your feeds first thing Tuesday morning. Hear about all of the crazy stuff that went down. And I was legitimately getting weepy by the end of it. And the fact that we've come from this show that we have been mercilessly making fun of for the past two and a half months into this like, no, nothing bad can happen to these characters because I love them. That's pretty remarkable. And I don't know, maybe I'm just spending too much time indoors, but that's really how I felt. Yeah, an ugly duckling can even become a swan. Uh, you know, and, and so that has happened with post show recaps. And then, of course, we've got other, all the other great stuff going on with uh, The Mandalorian has now uh, re- reached past its uh, second season, the halfway point. And then, of course, we have uh, everything Marvel Cinematic Universe, or I guess Marvel Universe, They're not the MCU, but still Marvel properties. Everything is Spider Man with uh, Josh Wiggler and Kevin Mahadeo. I believe they are in between Spider Man 2 and Spider Man 3, which one of them is very good and one of them is very bad. I'll leave it to you to say <laughs> what is what, but they have certainly have some thoughts. I hear there are, there are quite spirited arguments that broke out on the most recent podcast. And of course, if you want even more stuff to talk about you can become a patron of post show recaps at patreon.com slash post show recaps of course then you have access to a lot of great patron only content uh, including the watching with wiggler series where josh because he's just a, a fantastic admiral to us all uh, got together on thanksgiving day to watch some willy wonka with those of us who uh, had did not have the opportunity to celebrate in the way that we usually did there's also the great newsletter that jessica lee's ours herself puts out each and every week talking about what she's watching interviews with with creators on the network etc and then probably you know most pertinently there is a big ass discord where you get to chat about anything and everything, movies, TV, and otherwise. Uh, One fun discussion that we had recently was actually between the aforementioned Josh Wiggler, myself, and Brendan Fitzpatrick, where I basically gave my dissertation as to why, you know, The Mandalorian has gotten so much buzz and Star Trek Discovery has not. And there's a, I personally think there's a, a few reasons why, but it's very interesting looking at these two franchises that both have star in their name and, you know, have have sort of a similar new revivals in them uh, via series coming out nowadays. Yet one has become the redheaded stepchild, and speaking of Tilly, and one has become you know the golden child. And I think there there are a lot of reasons as to why one why what is what. But you have the ability to talk about Star Trek with us and a lot more on the Discord. Yep, yeah, and I will even like. Stepping back to the Marvel universe of it all, the seeds of that argument that erupted on the podcast are planted in the Discord when we got into a very spirited argument about Spider-Man in there. And I I love the Discord. It's really quickly become like kind of my social media home. It's a much more positive and comforting place than the wider worlds of Twitter and Facebook. And we play live games in there all the time. And it's just a really great group of people. And we've built a community so quickly that – I really think it's in your best interest to drop in on patreon.com slash post show recap, sign up and become a part of the fun. You really won't regret it. Yeah. And also, you know, we are nearing uh, the beginning of the month. So this is the perfect time to cash in. I would recommend if you become a patron, do so on December 1st, because patrons get charged the first of every month. So you don't want to get charged twice within a week. So if you do want to join us, which you should, because we have so much fun, uh, be sure to do it within a few days of this dropping. Also, I know over on the reality TV side of things, Jess, you and myself and Rob Sesternino have been talking 
the amazing race. Speaking of uh, basically traveling long distances with lots of communication difficulties. We talked about the mega leg this past week. We have a tar pit coming out. I also know that you were talking uh, some doggos over on the pack, which is Amazon Prime's new take on like a canine amazing race. Yes, I think it's it's a it was more entertaining than I thought it was going to be. Not sure it's totally for me, but I think we had a lot of people asking us if we were going to cover it in some way, and Rob made me watch it. We had a great panel. Uh, Rob and I were joined by Lita Brillman and Brooklyn Zed to talk about the pack, and it was a really fun time and a very funny podcast. So it's worth checking out the first episode of the pack, and if you want to stick around, I think we may be doing some future coverage on that. Amazing. I know that I'll also be on a Rob Nikivanita podcast, which might be out at this point, where Liana, Boris, and myself are going to choose your own Renat venture. We were going to read through some classic choose your own adventure novels of the most wackadoo variety that makes Star Trek Discovery season one look like child's play and see just how damn ridiculous that book series got, which was pretty damn far. So if you're into all that stuff, Reality TV, non-reality TV, and otherwise, check out what we're doing. And, and feel free to talk to us as well. Jess is at Haymaker Hattie. I'm at a Mike Bloom type on all forms of social media. Let us know your thoughts. We're over halfway through Disco Season 3 at this point, and it looks like we're going to go in some truly ridiculous directions in true disco fashion. But I can't wait to finish out the next six episodes with you, Jess. You know, this show is nothing if not ridiculous, and I'm very happy that I'm I've got a wonderful co-pilot along for the ride through all of it. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So thanks again, Mike, for enduring this insanity with me. And um, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to especially to all of our patrons and live long and prosper, friends. We'll see you next week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.